3: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network featuring tales to terrify and the all new far fetched fables everyone has a story in the district of wonders come and find yours <laughs> this is the starship sova everybody welcome hello and welcome to show 423 i am your host tony c smith hello everyone i hope everyone is fine and dandy and let's not say that we get all we don't believe in this valentine's i hope we've had a fantastic valentine's weekend me well we went to beamish museum which were and like a little hotel as well which was just fantastic. Beamish Museum over here in the northeast of England, it's like well, it is, it's stepping back in time to, you know, anywhere between the kind of early 1900s, 1940s, 1930s, just a, a remarkable place. And if anyone wants to come over, have a look on my Facebook page and you can see the photographs there. And the funny thing is, you know, there was a school in there, which just was, you know, what I went to when I was a little tot as well. And it was just quite strange, yeah, not the 1940s. But, God, man, it's rather strange, rather strange indeed. So, I hope you've had a lovely weekend and don't say you don't believe in it because love's the most beautiful thing in the world, man. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back at Genre History. Then we have Flight of the Kikion by Carrie English. Then right at the end, not right at the end, then we have "Poorie Planet by our very own Diane Severson. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So we will jump straight in with Looking Back at Genre History, Ames.
1: Hello ladies and gentlemen, it's time for another look back on genre history. As I record this, we are in the throes of The X-Files Revival. I just wanted to remind everyone that way back on episode 37, I contributed a segment that celebrated the X-Files and in particular traced the literary ancestors of Agents Mulder and Scully. So I wanted to point that out for those of you who have, like I have, slept since then. Just to remind you that if you're in the mood for a bit of X-Files genre talk, that segment is there on episode 37. But today, what I'd like to do is talk about the forthcoming 1941 Retro Hugo Awards. Those awards will be given at the upcoming Worldcon, also Mid-AmericaCon 2, which will be held in August in Kansas City, Missouri. I will be there. I'll be part of the programming. I hope that some of you will be there as well. If you are, please do say hello. There are few things better than members of the Starship Sofa family getting to meet face to face. So at this Worldcon, there will of course be the regular Hugo Awards for fiction from this past year. But there will also be the Retro Hugo Awards in a separate ceremony, which I understand will be a swing event in full period style. The Retro Hugo Awards are given to recognize works that should have been recognized by the Hugo Awards, but for one reason or another weren't because the World Con for that year didn't happen. In this case, the Retro Hugo Awards will be taking the place of the Hugo Awards ceremony that would have occurred in 1941 if, in fact, there had been a Worldcon in 1941, but the war intervened and Worldcon was not held that year. So this year, we can make sure that the best works from 1940 are no longer overlooked and do receive their proper awards. And you don't have to be an attending member of Worldcon this year to nominate works or vote for them. You can also be a supporting member, which gives you the same rights of nomination and voting, but simply means that you won't be attending Worldcon in person. Fortunately, there are lots of great resources if you're interested in the short fiction that is eligible for the 1941 Retro Hugo Awards. Some of those works are now in the public domain. And some of the great folks who are working with Mid-America Con 2, this year's 74th WorldCon, have gone to the trouble of putting together a number, I think we're up to eight, of collections of those public domain stories in various ebook formats for free download. So if you Google Eligible short fiction for the 1941 Retro Hugo Awards, you'll find uh, various resources where you can find those stories posted online, and you can find the downloadable ebook collections. Great resources there. Now, some of the other works are not in the public domain, but you can also find online a variety of resources that tell you the best collections to buy. Many of those are available in inexpensive used copies. Also available in libraries, through which you can get a good sampling of a lot of those works that aren't in the public domain but are most certainly strong contenders for the awards, very much worth reading. So, with all of the attention that has been given online to make the short fiction accessible, I thought it might make sense for me to talk about some of the longer fiction that is eligible for consideration for the Best Novel Award for the 1941 Retro Hugo Awards. I love science fiction novels, and of course, I love old novels. So it's no hardship for me to look back and talk about what I think are some of the standouts from 1940. It was a very good year. If you are nominating or voting works, I'm not trying to influence your nominations or votes in any way. I just thought it would be fun and potentially helpful to talk about a number of the works that are eligible, many of which may be familiar to Starship Sofa listeners and some of which might be considered a bit more obscure. And I certainly hope that this will be interesting even for those of you who are not participating in the nomination or voting process. So let's start with some obvious contenders. I think one that is very likely to show up as a finalist, is The Ill-Made Knight* by English author T.H. White. Uh, These days, you can find that as the third part of The Once and Future King. And this installment in the Arthurian cycle deals particularly with Lancelot and his relationships with Arthur, Guinevere, and Elaine. Now you may be saying, hey, is this science fiction? Okay, let's be honest. The Hugos has always been a bit mushy when it comes to genre distinctions, and it certainly isn't alone in that. The Nebulas, for example, take a similarly broad view. Really, we can think of this as an award that recognizes works that science fiction fans like, whether or not it's strictly science fiction. And I'm not going to criticize because, hey, I wasn't crying when Harry Potter won a Hugo, was I? No, I wasn't. So, I will say this is a well-known and very strong contender. Personally, though, I won't be upset if this doesn't win because uh, an earlier work in this sequence, that is The Sword and the Stone by T.H. White, won the 1939 Retro Award for Best Novel. So, I'd kind of like to see the love spread around a bit, but that's just me. Another front-runner that is probably familiar to a lot of listeners is Grey Lensman* by the American author E.E. E. Doc Smith. Now, you may remember I talked about the Lensman series quite recently when I was discussing science fiction influences on the Jedi in Star Wars. And the Linsman series as a whole was the runner-up in the special 1966 Hugo Award for the best all-time science fiction series. It came in second behind Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. When the Linsman series became books, Gray Linsman was the fourth, published after Triplanetary, First Linsman, and Galactic Patrol, and it was published in book form in 1951, but it originally debuted in Astounding Stories in serial format between October 1939 and January 1940. This is the second of the Linsman series to focus on the adventures of unattached Linsman extraordinaire Kimball Kinnison. And a number of the critics and scholars who study Pulp SF with their heroes and villains and space battles and crazy aliens suggest that Gray Linsman is the best of the Linsman series. Gray Linsman, like T.H. White's Ill-Made Night, is available from Audible as an unabridged audiobook. Another work you may be familiar with, certainly it deserves to be read and remembered for a long time, is The Pathbreaking Slan by A.E. Van Vogt. And it was that Canadian-born author's very first novel, and p- probably still his best-known. It follows the Slans. They are basically evolved human beings. Their supposed creator, Samuel Lan is how they get the name Slan. And these super people are uh, smarter, they are superior in strength, they have incredible stamina and nerves, and they're psychic. They can read minds. The rest of humanity, of course, hates and fears them. Some critics say that the persecution of the Slans by regular humans is, is essentially a commentary on the way that the Jews were treated in Nazi Germany. But it also sort of twists the idea because it turns out there really is a worldwide conspiracy and Slans really are sort of in charge, uh, as we find out in the novel. And that sort of plays on the anti-Semitic propaganda coming out of places like Nazi Germany at the time. There's some interesting character work in the novel, but ultimately it's a big ideas kind of work, because if the characters don't solve the issues that they are facing, not only will there be, in the short term, genocide, but in the long term, quite possibly, the implosion of all of humanity. The book also had some really fun impacts on the science fiction community. Very quickly, the slogan, Fans are Slans, came about, uh, suggesting, of course, that uh, we fans are more intelligent and imaginative than mere mundanes, and of course, we're persecuted by those who don't understand us as well. And in the 40s, if you heard of a place called a Slan Shack, well, that was a hangout for science fiction fans. It was a safe place. It was a place where you could go to be understood and protected by one of your own. SLAN was included in the SF Masterworks series and is widely available in used book format as well, and it's also available on Audible as an audiobook. I would be shocked, shocked I say, if SLAN is not a finalist for the award. I have many more works to talk about, so clearly this is going to be a two-parter. But I think I'd like to wrap up by talking about the work that, frankly, is going to be at the top of my nominations list. And if you haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend that you do so. And that is Calocane by the Swedish author Karen Boy. And that is spelled K-A-L-L-O-C-A-I-N. And that is available in English translation. It's one of the four great children of Yevgeny Zamyatin's We, in that uh, we set in motion the modern dystopian tradition, and Kalokane is a classic, not only of Swedish science fiction and Swedish dystopian thought, but of dystopian literature, period. It's right up there with Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, Ayn Rand's Anthem, and George Orwell's 1984. It's the story of Dr. Leo Cal. Cal meaning both cold and profession in Swedish. He's a scientist. He's a loyal party member. And he only wishes to be, quote, a good fellow soldier, a happy, healthy cell in the state organism, end quote. Uh, He ends up creating a truth drug, which he calls calocaine, that forces the person who takes it to spill out his or her thoughts. At last... You see, no citizen can hide his or her innermost secrets from the world state. It's a kind of mental rape. He tests this on human guinea pigs, and through these tests, we get a chilling look at a cross-section of citizens. We see how truly empty and miserable they are under this totalitarian regime. They're strangling without a sense of self, but they always have a sense of fear. And Cal persuades the state police just how useful it could be to use this drug as a tool. But as he further explores into the human psyche, he becomes aware that he himself has two attachments, two relationships that confound what should be his sole attachment, his, his connection to the world state. Now, these attachments, they're not his three kids, because obviously his kids belong much more to the state than to him. And the imagery we get of their indoctrination and the added surveillance that they and their caretakers provide, very much like 1984. But of course, Calocaine was written nine years earlier. One of his attachments is to his wife, Linda, whom he loves and who he finds out is, well, miserable, and the other is t- attachment to his colleague, rival, immediate supervisor, friend, Ido Rissen. Rissen is humane, and we find out romantically linked to Linda, and casual and permissive. And his traits make him not a good citizen. He says no fellow soldier over 40 can have a clear conscience which is why history and memory are the enemies of the state. Our protagonist grows increasingly paranoid. He's caught up in this web of suspicion. Is it it for him? Is it for Linda? Is it for Risen? And ultimately, he brings about the arrest and trial of Risen. He force-feeds Calicane to Linda, and he discovers there's a higher communion than that between the citizen and the state. As I say, it anticipates a lot of 1984. It is a dark, haunting, poetic work, and I'm spending just a bit more time on it because it may be less familiar to you than others. It's been translated into many languages, including English. It was filmed in Sweden in 1981, and then it would go on to become the main influence on the movie Equilibrium, starring Christian Bale, Tay Diggs, and Sean Bean in 2002, I have found it online. I'm not certain of the legality of the places I've found it, so I will say it's uh, apparently there, but it's also available in uh, paperback format, and it's very much worth spending time with, as, in fact, are all of the classics that I have discussed in this segment. I think it's safe to say that these are some of the better-known works, some of the expected frontrunners, for the Retro Hugo Award for 1941 Best Novel. But there are many others to talk about, and I intend to bring up some of those, some of which are lesser known, in part two of my look at these books that are eligible for the award. And I thank you for (laughs) enabling me. Uh, in my quest to go back and read or in some cases reread some of these great novels because I'm having a fantastic time. And I will look forward to joining you with part two with a look at other great novels written in 1940 when we return again soon to look back into genre history. Thank you.
2: There you go. Now make a date in your calendar because Amy's already given us part two. So I have that already. So looking forward to that. Ames, thank you so much. Next up is the main fiction. And it is Flight of the Kikian* by Carrie English. I'll give you a little heads up about Carrie. This story actually originally appeared in Galaxy Edge magazine. Carrie English is a Writers of the Future winner and a Hugo nominee Whose work has appeared in *Daily Science Fiction*, *Writers of the Future* Volume Thirty-One, and *Galaxy Edge*? Carrie grew up in a snowy Midwest, and she avoided siblings and frostbite by, by reading books after a book in a warm corner behind a recliner chair. She blames her one and only high school detention on Douglas Adams, whose Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy made her laugh out loud while reading behind the geometry textbook. Go on there, Carrie. Today, Carrie still spends most of her time with her head in the clouds and her nose in a book. To the great relief of her parents, she seems to be making a living at it. Her fiction includes several short stories, a planetary fantasy series available in 2016, and a fantasy saga about a little girl and an orange kitten. Carrie's greatest inspiration is to make her own work detention-worthy. This story is narrated by Lulu Sal, who is a wife, mother of two and inspiring author of historical romance, fantasy and children's books. She is also a school teacher specialising in English and medieval history. She somehow manages to speak both Arabic and English. Her narration credits so far include Robin Hobb, Cat Rambo, Kim Stanley Robinson and Karen Lord. She lives in Australia. Sydney, Australia, and reads far too many big books, and eats far too much chocolate. <laughs> and, uh, yes, we know, yes, our very own Jeremy Sal, at his mum, that's mum. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
0: Flight of the Kikaon, by Carey English, read by Lulu Sal. The alien skies of Jana four stretched above me, infinite as time itself. This is day 647 since Kikeon's departure, but no one will come for me because no one knows I am missing. Well, no one but Kara. It is an hour before dawn and I am standing on the beach fantasizing about bread, dreaming about the warm, yeasty aroma, the crisp surrender of the crust under my teeth and the yielding whiteness inside. I imagine dinner rolls torn in half and filled with melting butter, then licking my fingers to dab runaway crumbs from the tablecloth. Pungent sourdough, crusty baguettes, small, sweet loaves dark with molasses. I turn over a lump of seaweed to reveal sand fleas bigger than my thumb. I've learned to crack their shells with my teeth and suck out the insides. They are cold, slimy and nothing like bread. When the sand flies are gone, I slurp down some of the velvet kelp fronds grumbling over the fishy stink. I spit grains of sand and look to the sky. The edge of the horizon grows an incandescent pink against a cloudless indigo heaven. I shield my eyes with my hand. My once manicured fingernails are splitting and caked with grime after my breakfast. The coming heat warms my palm, and my eyes water in anticipation of the harsh light. The planet's twin suns will rise soon and I must return to my cave to wait for the next dark. On the sandbar, some four hundred metres distant, the Kikeon's looted air skiff lies mired like a mastodon in a tar pit. Squinting into the foredawn, I turned away from the water's edge. My bare feet leave footprints where the sand is wet, then shallow craters where it's dry. The trail ahead of me is hard to see in the grey light, but my feet know every rock and root from two years of nightly pilgrimage. I gave the tissue sample to make Kara seven years ago. With that amount of time to plan, you'd think I might have done a better job. If not for the accident, I'd be on Cyrus right now, probably sipping a glass of wine at a cocktail party. It wasn't difficult to get Kara onto the luxury liner. She was, after all, identical to me in every respect from her wavy brown hair to her habit of averting her eyes when she laughed, to the spirals of her DNA. Kara units were the latest fad among the ultra-wealthy. Anam Kara, the slogan went, because your children deserve you. Why bring a stranger into your home when Anam, allied neuro-associates multicorp, could create a duplicate mother in just a few months? With an Annam clone, celebrity and socialite mothers could lunch with the ladies' FTL auxiliary while Kara took the children to the park, and all the paparazzi would see was a doting mother on an outing with her children. For a million credits more, Kara would carry a couple's child, sparing the mother the inconveniences of pregnancy, just as she would later spare her the inconvenience of childcare. As Annam's owner, my husband Donnie named them all Kara, He insisted that the first one would be ours, a replica of me. I pause in the shade of a makeshift shelter at the base of a rock spire, running my hands over Kara's empty stasis capsule. I touch a button to open the windowed hatch in its white egg-like surface. The repulsors couldn't handle the steep climb into Die Smuggler's Cave, but I am glad I kept it intact. Early on, I considered cannibalising the upholstery, tubing and other components, but sentimentality stayed my hand. Kara was delivered to us in that capsule. Her naked body curled fetally around a four-month belly and locked in a sleep-like state that Donnie and I could start or end with a spoken command. Kara gave birth to our daughter, Emmeline, five months later. The secret to Kara wasn't just cloning, but an embedded neuralink that ensured obedience and a pleasant demeanour. The companion memory module allowed the mother to share Kara's experiences almost as if she'd been there. Most children couldn't tell Kara apart from their own mothers, a feature designed to remedy the problem of undignified attachment to the hired help. Kara and the real mother would never be seen together, but these logistics were no impediment to a client based accustomed to shielded limos and staff who disappeared into the servants' wing. I climbed into the capsule padded seat to flip switches scan readouts and check every inch of wire and tubing. I can still smell Kara's scent, lavender soap, and baby lotion. My hands complete their task even though my thoughts are elsewhere. No leaks, no bubbles, connections tight, all parameters with intolerance. Climbing out again, I caress the padding where Kara's head used to lie. It shames me now, but I hated her for the first two years of her life. "'Donnie took special delight in beating me while Kara was pregnant. "'After all,' he'd sneered, "'it wasn't like he could hurt the baby. "'Later, after Emmy was born, "'when Donnie's temper rendered me unfit for polite society, "'it was Kara who appeared on Donnie's arm, "'with bouncing baby Emmeline held in sweet domesticity on her hip. "'I knew I'd need money, lots of it, to disappear with Emmy.' Donnie's reach was long, and without an escape plan in place, divorce was a ticket to a tragic accident or an unmarked grave. Fake receivables, nested, holding companies, offshore accounts. With a company as large as Annam, it wasn't difficult to siphon off what I needed. I kept it to a tickle, but I invested that tickle in five years later, I was ready to make my move. By the time I reached the mouth of Eunice cave... The second sun has fully risen. I breathe in the moist scent as the dew evaporates. My eyes adjust in the cave's entrance. It looks much as it did when I first saw it. A small, sleeping platform. That's for making the brilliant purple dye from the whelks on the rocks below. A few tools and a case of rations. Empty now, but full when I'd arrived. There used to be rolls of cloth, dyed and undyed, waiting for Eunice and Mitai to carry them back to the skiff back to Kikeon and Tashi Station. There I used for clothing to pad the sleeping platform and to make bright the shelter I'd constructed over Kara's stasis capsule. I'd expected the purple to fade under the bite of the double suns, but somehow the colour only deepened. I fashioned one of the lengths into a rope for tomorrow. I wrap it round me and head for the sleeping platform. Its softness against my skin comforts me. The cave is cool and dark. It smells of rock and water. I have 17 hours before sunset and I've chosen to spend them reliving Kara's memories and perhaps a few of my own. A blink of my eyes brings up the retinal interface of the Neuralink. I've tagged with my favourite memories so they're easy to find. In the first one, Kara bakes cookies with Emmy, teaching her to break the eggs without getting shell in the batter. A smile plumps my cheeks when the two begin sneaking bites from the bowl. Emmy flicks a morsel of dough at Kara. The ensuing cookie dough and tickle fight reduces them both to gasping laughter on the floor. Their laughter floods my system with endorphins, a rush of happiness that nearly stops my breath. The neurolink sinks my biochemistry to readings from the memory. We added vasopressin in the final round of testing because it makes the memory seem real. I give in to the illusion because it allows me to feel the ghost of Emmy's ribs under my fingers when Kara tickles her. Kara ruffles Emmy's hair and kisses her cheek gritty with butter and sugar. If I close my eyes and inhale, I can smell the vanilla extract. When this memory ends, I click through to the next, losing myself in a state more vivid than dreams. Kara was a puzzle to me at first, shy and nervous in my presence but stealing adoring glances when she thought I wasn't looking. I told myself it was just the neurolink manipulating her neurotransmitters, oxytocin for bonding serotonin, GABA and dopamine for mood. Kara worked so hard to please that my heart softened toward her against my will. Kara loved Emmy with every fibre of her being. It showed in her smile, in the way she held out a single finger for Emmy's chubby fist to grasp when the two walked in the park. Yet I dismissed her feelings for me as ghosts in the machine, meaningless accidents of her biochemistry. Can a neurotransmitter compel love? It makes no sense to me now, but I believed it at the time. Donnie must have spent a fortune in bribes to persuade the Food and Drug Authority that Kara's sentence was illusory an artefact of the mother's consciousness amplified through the neurolink, Home movies and tissue grown in the lab, he'd said, no more intelligence than an organ transplant. Legally speaking, Cara was intellectual property with no identiscan and no status as a person. It was Donnie who suggested the verse cruise. Time dilation meant we'd be gone for two years' earth time. I couldn't believe he'd leave Annam for that long. Friends of ours had gone, so I assumed it was a status thing. You leave on a six-month cruise, and when you return, tanned and relaxed, your investments have had more than two years to mature. Donnie wanted to leave Emmy and Cara behind. He said he'd wanted the cruise to be just the two of us, a chance to heal and reconnect. I refused. I didn't trust him. And I couldn't imagine leaving Emmy for that long. We fought about it bitterly. Looking back, I should have suspected, should have noticed that something was different. It was the first fight where Donnie gave in instead of securing my acquiescence with his fists. What I didn't know was that his capitulation meant he decided to have Kara recycled. Two weeks before our departure, Donnie ordered her into the stasis capsule to be returned to Annam. There was a child care on the ship and with us gone for two years, He treated Kara like one more thing to be boxed up and put in storage. She came to me, weeping. Lydia, Lydia, he's sending me back. Only while we're gone, I'm sure, you won't even notice it. He said recycling. I looked at her tear-filled eyes so like my own. Kara, I think we can help each other. And that's what started the chain of events that left me marooned on this alien shore. I cringe now, but we'd been trained to think of the Kara units as things, not people, and having her aboard the ship made my escape plan easier. The deal I offered her was simple. I promised to save her from recycling if she would take my place with Donnie. From that moment forward, she was complicit in my every move. I persuaded Donnie to let me keep Kara until we left for the ship, it would make packing easier, I told him, if I didn't have Emmy underfoot all day. Working in secret, Kara and I studied the route of the luxury liner, looking for a place to swap out the NeuroLinks. Exchanging the devices would give my identity to Kara and render me a non-person. The NeuroLinks communicated via the net, sending a continuous stream of data to each other and to Anam as well. If a unit went silent, it would trigger an alert and Anam would and send a message to Donny, both of which would be lost if it happened while transiting net-dead space. We found what we needed at Tarshish Station in the Ghazi system. Kara, look! I read the listing aloud to her. Ghazi system. Luddite interdict. Religious. Tourism prohibited on all planets and up to and including immediate execution for atmospheric incursions on Jaina 4, the system's uninhabited water planet, restrictions broadcast from Tashi Station, the system's only known technological center, populated by citizens exiled for blasphemy. Tashi Station is a refueling stop, known for expansive views of Jaina of Four and log- locally produced holovids of New Maker and other prohibited territories. Car appeared at the listing over my shoulder. Luddite, religious, proto-Amish. I squinted at the names and tapped the screen for details. No, looks like Quranic. They have a beacon, said Kara. That's not netless space. It says here the beacon is broadcast only. All communication with Tashish must be made via subspace radio. I spent the next several days at the lab at Annam, practising with Neuralinks. Donnie liked it when I made myself useful, as he called it and I enjoyed using the neuroscience degree I'd put aside after marrying. Kara spent the days with Emmy and the evenings with me shopping and packing for the trip. We couldn't be seen together, so we used the holographic dressing room in the privacy of Kara's quarters instead of shopping in the stores. I let Kara select much of what we would wear. After all, the clothes would be hers. When I left, so she might as well like them. Her taste was different from mine, Fluttering hemlines and softer colours, it was an odd feeling watching her try on dress after dress. Odd, but pleasant. It reminded me of sleepovers and shopping with my mother as a child. It was the happiest I'd felt in years. Donnie seemed to have no idea what we were up to, and he probably mistook my sunny disposition for excitement over the cruise. Kara's stasis capsule went aboard as luggage. Empty to avoid the ship's bioscanners, sealed in a crate and classified as a medical device. Kara, bareheaded and smiling, boarded on Donnie's arm, holding Emmy by the hand. Security took photos and DNA, both of which matched up perfectly with my ID. I boarded 45 minutes later, out of breath and clutching my wide brimmed hat as if I'd been hurrying. My palm on the DNA scanner triggered a warning chime. The ship's security officers eyed me. One of them walked over. Madam? He started. Lydia Braconti, I finished. Since we were penthouse guests, he would have been briefed on our names. I left my hat in the VIP lounge. The man squinted at his data pad. A tap of his finger summoned Kara's boarding photo, hatless and smiling. His eyes flitted to the hat in my hands. I'm terribly sorry, Mrs. Proconte. Passenger control did not log your departure properly. Welcome aboard again. I'd booked an extra cabin on one of the lower decks for additional storage. It became a secret haven where Kara and I met like conspirators in Thrill of Vids. Kara stayed inside most of the day to avoid showing up on security cams. While I slept at night, she came to eat and explore the ship. At her request... I stayed hidden in the cabin myself, every so often, so she would have time with Emmy. I still hadn't decided what to do about Emmy. I couldn't bear the thought of leaving her with Donnie, but a nagging thought had been building in the back of my head. It gnawed at me every time I saw Emmy through Kara's neurolink. What if the best person to take care of Emmy was Kara? I prodded this thought over and over in the back of my mind. I was still prodding it on the day we entered the Gaza system six weeks into the voyage. Donnie seemed so different on the ship. Relaxed, gentler, funnier, like the Donnie I'd known and loved in grad school before Annam, before anger and violence turned him into someone I no longer recognised. We'd had honeymoons like this before, but he'd promised me that things would be different. This change seemed too sudden, too contrived. I wondered if the cruise was a set-up to get rid of me. If I missed the Ghazi window, I wouldn't get another opportunity. I decided to go through with the switch. I'd booked an all-day spa appointment during the port call at Tashi Station. The ship would be nearly empty and the Ghazi holovids didn't interest me. Switching the Neuralinks did Kara arrived first, hiding herself inside the sensory deprivation tank I'd reserved. I wandered past the desk a few moments later, claiming I'd taken a wrong turn the first time. I entered the treatment room and changed into the spa's fluffy robe and slippers. We hadn't even started when I heard a commotion in the hallway and an insistent knock on the door. "'Ma'am? Ma'am? Lydia!' came an apologetic female voice. "'Your husband!' I closed the lid on the sensory deprivation tank, hiding Kara inside. I opened the door a crack. Donnie barged inside, an excited smile on his face. Shore excursion in an hour. Sport fishing. Be dressed and ready. Sport fishing? On a space station? It made no sense, and Donnie was screwing with my plans. I'm booked here for the next six hours, I told him. You can tell me about it when you get back. When I turned to close the door, Donnie grabbed my arm, his face millimetres from my own. You're my done wife, and you'll do. Donnie blinked and shook himself. His fingers loosened on my arm. He took a halting breath, then continued. It's a surprise, Lydia, for you. Please join me. He leaned in to kiss my cheek, but I pulled away and closed the door between us. I breathed in slowly. It was an old habit, counting each breath until the trembling stopped. One down the hall I could hear him telling the spa girls to rebook me. two I rubbed my arm gingerly pressing where his fingers had been, tender, but no bruises. This time. three. The latch on the seat step tank clicked and the lid raised by a tiny fraction. I pushed it closed again. four a hesitant knock at the door, a timid voice asked if ma'am was free on Wednesday. Five. Wednesday's fine, I called. I'll be out as soon as I change. The steadiness of my voice surprised me. I locked the door and popped the latch on the tank. Kara sat up, soundlessly waiting. She looked at me, wide-eyed, struggling on the point of tears. She reached out abortively as if to console me. I waved her back, and she hugged her knees to her chest. I might even have smiled. The shaking was gone, but my mind raced. One hour, sport-fishing. What to do about Kara? We switched the neurolinks. Now that I'd had the security codes, it was quicker than I'd expected. I wonder if I'd feel different. There was... something, but I didn't have time to ponder it. While we fussed with identical buttons and zippers, I relayed my plan. She couldn't be seen aboard the ship while I was allegedly on a shore excursion. She'd have to come with us. I toyed with sending her in my place, but of course I couldn't be seen either. She would have to travel in the Stasis capsule, and I'd have to send it ahead as luggage. I assured her she would she could stay awake. I even gave her the unit's remote as security. I thumbed the comlink link for our cabin steward and ordered container number 23 delivered to my dressing room immediately. There wasn't enough time to stagger our departure by more than a few minutes. I went first, dressed in my original clothing and faking a conversation with Donnie on my smart com. Kara followed a moment later wrapped in a bathrobe, her feet in slippers, hair in a towel and a mask of green goop covering her face. Thirty minutes later, Kara was safely ensconced in the stasis unit, Emmy was in the ship's children's club and I was dressed and ready for my sport fishing surprise. When Donnie and I stepped off the gangway and cleared the docking tube, men in long robes crowded around us hawking jewellery, purple cloth and holovids. They plucked at our sleeves, thrusting their wares at us. Lady, lady, you come see, see Mecca, very safe. Sir, my ship, my ship best. Liahu, give you many sons. Ship? Why would we need a ship to watch holovids? I clung to Donny, feeling alien and vulnerable in my shorts and boat shoes. Donnie shoved the sellers away. Eunice, where with Eunice? One of the men spat. He gabbled short syllables in his own language and his face rendered them a curse. A boy tugged on Donnie's shirt. Sir, I take you, Eunice, this way. The boy led us through the crowd, slipping like a ferret through the narrow maze of market stalls. He kept his grip on Donnie's sleeve. We had to half-jog to keep up. After a few turns, the press of humanity thinned, giving way to echoing metal hallways punctuated by airlocks and docking tubes. The man who waited near one of the tubes was ancient, his brown face creased like old leather under the swath of cloth that wrapped his head. His gaze flickered to my bare legs, delivering a rebuke that stung no less for being wordless. The boy tugged on Donnie again. "This Mitai, Eunice's father." The urchin bowed quickly, grabbing a proffered coin from Mitai, before retreating into the echoing halls the old man sized Donnie up, extending one gnarled palm. See maka, lady? When Donnie pulled aside his jacket to reveal a wad of currency in his breast pocket, Mithai nodded and placed his palm over the scan pad for the airlock. What are you doing? I whispered to Donnie. He doesn't even have goggles. I doubted we were here for an exotic travel vid, and given Matai's reaction to my bare legs, the docking tube led to something chaster than a floating house of ill repute i lifted my chin besides whatever it is we have to wait for the luggage anger flashed in donnie's eyes luggage it's a day trip lydia his fingers tightened on my hand it's just one case i protested what if i need to change you saw how they looked at me a muscle twitched in johnny's jaw he took a breath and struggled to calm himself We'll ask Eunice to send a man to get it for you, he said. Donnie let go of my hand and guided me through the airlock. His lips brushed my ear. I saw the screen on your computer. I thought you'd like to see the ocean. Ocean? Janna 4? Donnie, we can't go to Jana 4. It's a death penalty interdict. Donnie smiled that infuriating grin of his, the mischievous one I'd found so charming a decade ago. Not if we don't get caught. Eunice introduced himself when we boarded, a younger version of Mitai. His bright eyes and disarming smile had a promise of adventure. The cacao on Eunice's ship remind me of the old man outside, ancient, verging on decrepit, and held together by stubbornness. The interior smelled of lubricants, spicy food, and the body odors of Eunice's crew. Eunice offered us refreshments, then led us to the ship's hold where the half-deflated balloon of an airship slouched like bread dough sagging over the edges of the pan. Donnie said what I was thinking. "'Does that thing even fly?' Eunice laughed and clapped Donnie on the shoulder. "'She will fly long after you and I are dead, my friend. If you wish to see the Balmote, the great Leviathan of the sea, this is how we go.' "'Leviathan?' Donnie was taking us fishing." "'For sea monsters?' "'How close will we get?' Donny asked. "'What about vids?' "'No vids,' Yanus replied flatly. Liahu forbids it.' "'What about off-worlders?' I asked. "'Doesn't Liahu forbid them too?' Donny shot me a look. Eunice just shrugged. He struck his breast with a fist, then made dismissive gestures with his fingers. "'God,' he said. "'God, I love. "'The laws of men, not so much.' He turned to Donnie and continued, The Bahmut, he is very large, very dangerous. He rises from the sea to take his prey. How close? Close enough to see him, but not so close that we are food for his children, eh? The floor vibrated under our feet and a dull keening sound reached my ears. Eunice turned to us with an expansive gesture. My guests, your things have arrived and we are leaving Tarshish Station. My home is yours. Two hours later, Eunice, Mitai, Donnie and I clambered into the air skiff's passenger compartment and strapped ourselves into the seats. More dirigible than spaceship, the little craft had a living area that doubled as a cockpit, two sleeping alcoves and a small hold for goods and equipment. I'd inspected the hold myself, making sure the crate that held Kara in her capsule was safely stowed amongst the nets and canisters that held Eunice's other goods. The air skiff took in its moorings when Kikayon pierced the upper atmosphere. The silvery skin above us still hung limp, covering the windows. Why wasn't it inflating? I lifted my voice over the din of rattles and screeches and yelled the question to Donnie. No room! Donnie yelled back. It inflates after they drop us! After they what? Donnie was repeating himself when the floor dropped out of the cargo hold. Their little skiff shot from Kikeon's belly and hurtled like a rock toward the blue below. I covered my ears, then my mouth. Only then did I realise that the high screeching sound that filled my ears was more than my own screaming. Unison and Mithai threw open the nozzles on the skiff's gas canisters. The silvery fabric above us rippled and billowed as it filled, slowing our descent until a soft, slow-motion bounce left us floating above the vast, blue oceans of Jane of Four. The sight took my breath away. The planet had no continents or large land masses, only chains of small islands where red fingers of rock reached toward the sky. The entire curve of the horizon was nothing but water and more water, blue on blue as far as the eye could see. Ghazi's double suns painted the waves with gold. Freeing myself from my seat, I stood entranced in the viewing area with my palms pressed against the glass. Donny, it's beautiful. Donny sidled up behind me to slip his arm around my waist. Eunice brought the skiff lower until we could see our shadow moving over the face of the water. A hundred metres, I thought, maybe a little more. A thrill of excitement rippled over me. Was this what Eunice meant? Close enough to see the Bahmut, yet far enough to escape their bite? Yanis caught my excitement. He grinned at me, pointing to our shadow below. The Bahmut will see yeah. click Eunice caught my excitement. He grinned at me, pointing to our shadow below. The Bahmut, you will see him there. Motion direction. This means life to him. Food for his belly. He will strike the shadow. The water under our shadow rippled and went.
1: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds
0: per week. Individual results may vary. Still, the ripple returned, joined by a second disturbance several feet away. The water boiled and heaved, white frothing, tipping the waves as something immense moved beneath the surface. My hands had grown sweaty, so I wiped them against my shorts without taking my eyes from the window. Eunice left the helm to stand beside me, teaching me to read serpent sign in the water below. Donnie moved closer to the controls to watch from a different angle. There were three serpents now, maybe four, though none had breached the surface of the water. Then one rolling coil lifted clear of the waves. Turquoise changed to purple when the iridescent scales shimmered in the sun. I clapped my hands like a child, my mouth agape. A second coil followed the first, ruby-scaled and thicker than an oil drum. I saw flash of emerald green, then a shimmer of black. Soon the water below was a great writhing mass of glistening serpents, hundreds of them, each one could have swallowed a man whole. Are there always so many? I asked. It is a nest, Eunice replied. A nest? These are babies? Eunice nodded. Donnie watched me from a few feet away, leaning against the control panel and smiling. The skiff's shadow had grown steadily larger until it covered the entire pod of baby sea monsters. I was so absorbed in the spectacle that I didn't notice until we were close enough that I could see individual scales and trace the line of slime-covered spines along each jeweled back. A large wave lifted the tangle of serpents, startling the young Bahmut. The water churned in an angry froth. The babies scattered and plunged beneath the sea. Eunice lunged for Donnie and knocked him away from the helm. Fool, he cried. Up, up, the mother comes. The skiff shuddered when he dropped ballast and threw open the valves for the gas. The water below us rose in white-capped peaks. A shimmer of green flashed beneath the surface. A shimmer so large the skiff could have landed on it. Eunice strained against the controls. He shouted orders to Mithai as the little craft rocked to one side. I grabbed for the rail, unable to look away from the water below. I judged our distance at fifty metres and rising. The serpent's massive head skimmed under the surface of the waves. Water blurred her form. I marvelled at the vivid shades of turquoise and sea green that mottled her sides. Her nose lifted above the waters. Her head rose from the sea until it was level with the ship. Sea foam dripped from her spines. She could have taken the skiff in two bites. I stared into alien eyes, slitted with a mother's rage. Her great mouth opened. Row upon row of glistening teeth framed a moor of seashell pink. Her strike was too fast to see, a blur of motion sound that shook the glass and rattled the skiff. She snapped us in her jaws and slammed the skiff to one side, then the other, then she spat us out and drove beneath the waves to shield her young. The deck pitched beneath my feet. Donnie and I slid down the floor until we crashed into the back wall. I crawled to the window where flapping shreds of silver confirmed my fear. She'd hulled the balloon. Eunice and Mitai manned the controls. They drove the criffled skiff toward shallower water. A rock spire loomed in the distance and a yellow strip of sand curving like a chameleon's tongue in front of it. Life jackets? None. I held on to Donnie's instead. The impact when we hit drove the breath from my lungs. Moonrise over the ocean of Jaina Four was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. The night was balmy, and Tarshish, nearly full, threw a cascade of silver ribbons over the surface of the waves. I wiggled my bare toes into the sand. When I'd left the crippled skiff, Mutai and Eunice had their heads together over an array of scattered charts and equipment. The skiff's walls were too close around me and the air outside too free. If it was the last moonrise I'd ever see, I wanted to savour it. I heard Donnie's footsteps padding over the sand behind me. I'd hoped to savour this moonrise alone, but like so many other things in my life it wasn't to be. He sat down beside me, barefoot, khaki trousers cuffed to his calves as if this were any moonlit walk on any beach. "'Mind if I join you?' he asked." I minded, but kept my head down and said nothing. This isn't how I planned it, he said, twisting a bottle into the sand between us. I recognised the vintage. It was the same sweet honey wine we'd shared the night he proposed. I just wanted you to see them up close. You looked so happy, so alive. He showed me his other hand, the stem of two glasses laced between his fingers. Join me. I risked a quick look into his eyes. My breath caught as what I saw sadness, regret, and something that might have been longing. He poured two glasses and handed me one. I'll get us out of this lid, don't worry. Eunice has a camp in a cave on the island. He nodded toward the distant rock formation. They use it to harvest whelks to make their dyes. "'Eunice and I will cross over in a few hours to set a beacon from the spire. "'A beacon? Can't they radio?' "'Donny shook his head. No radio. Tarshish will hear it. "'Kikeon can't land on water. We'll have to get above the surface, "'somewhere she can hover without attracting those monsters.' "'I wanted to protest, to defend the mother for protecting her young, "'but I knew better than to start a fight. "'We sipped our wine in silence.' is a lot of money, Lid. Donnie named the exact amount I'd siphoned from Annam's account. I lunged away, spilling the honey wine. Donnie caught my wrist and pulled me back. 1. My world tilted until the silver-tipped waves ran up and down instead of sideways. Donnie eased me into the sand next to him. Please, Lid, just listen. 2. Donnie pulled my hand to the side of his head, running my fingers through... The hair behind his ear. I felt a familiar shape there, hard against his skin. A NeuroLink. Three. It took me a while to get it right. His thumb caressed my fingers. The NeuroLink lid. We fixed depression. We fixed Alzheimer's. We made Kara. I knew we could fix this. Fix me. Four. I tried without it lid. I saw Jamie every day for six months, he said, naming the therapist from our failed attempts at marriage counselling. When I couldn't do it on my own, she helped me tune the settings. Five. So you decide. I'll sell Annam if you want. We can go anywhere you like. Just you, me and Emmy. Keep the money. Hell, I'll give you a million more if you want it. Go to Cyrus with Emmy. I wouldn't stop you, but please, Lid. give me, give us. A chance? 6. Donnie pulled me close, stroking my hair with gentle hands until I lost count. Perhaps his words were no more than promises under an inconstant moon, but there on the alien sands, in a world hidden from life and time, we found in each other a place that felt like home. I woke when Danny disentangled himself from my arms. Eunice waited a few steps away. When the moon set and dawn not yet come, this was the darkest hour, the greatest chance of reaching Kikayon by flare or beacon without attracting the Bahmut. I closed my eyes against Donnie's chest. Why does it have to be you? I whispered. Mithai is too old to climb the spire. I promise I'll come back for you. Eunice cracked open the survival kit, a round barrel with white ridged sides. He tossed several small items onto the sand rations, emergency blanket, and a flare gun. Eunice wasn't interested in these. What he wanted was a crumpled mass of grey material, a life raft. He popped a latch, yanked a cord. The raft writhed and hissed while its coils filled and unfolded like a tiny version of the monster they hoped to escape. The two men loaded themselves into the inflatable. Sand ground against the bottom when they pushed off. Their progress seemed achingly slow, Four hundred metres of open water separated us from the island. Eunice's plan was to drift with the current, saving the paddles for course direction. We knew they were in trouble as soon as they pushed off. The current in the channel ran parallel to the shore. Unchecked, it could carry the raft past the small island and into the open ocean beyond. The blade of Eunice's paddle glowed like a pale flame against the obsidian sea. A flame quenched while Eunice trailed it behind the boat, changing the direction of the raft instead of urging it forward. Mitai came to stand beside me, murmuring unintelligible prayers at my side. The raft passed the midpoint of the journey. Hope rose in my chest. I clenched my fist against my mouth, my thumbs pressing into my lips as we watched. Then Donnie's shout reached us over the water. The paddles bit deeply into the wave as the men pulled for shore. Bahmut, Mitai whispered. My scream joined Mitai's ululating cry when the back of the beast broke the beauty of the waves. Undulating coils rippled through the water, spines erect and glistening. The monster's back dwarfed the raft, a wail to their krill. For the tiniest moment, we thought they might make it, might reach the safety of sand and shallow water. Then the behemoth's head rose from the sea. Its great moor opened with a spray of shimmering drops, framing the spire on the distant island like a lance against the monster's throat. The Mahmud took men and boat in one fierce snap of jaws and then plunged into the depths. Mittai pounded his fists rhythmically against his chest, keening with the thudding of his grief. In his other hand, his dagger carved stripes of mourning into his flesh. I felt nothing numbness, an absent static filled void that left me unable to think or move the grey of dawn was creeping into the sky when Mithai touched my arm lady, his ancient voice was little more than a broken whisper lady, sons come we go Lydia, I said my name is Lydia the man stared at me I stared back His shirt hung in bloody ribbons, both cloth and skin scored with thin parallel gashes, then laid over with bruising. His fingers plucked at the remains of his shirt. For Eunice, he said, pounding the hilt of his dagger against his bloodied chest. His mouth worked until it wrapped itself around the unfamiliar syllables of my name. Li-la-dua? It was close enough, so I nodded. Lydia. La-dua. He fell to his knees laughing and sobbing together as tears raced down his sun creased cheeks. La Jua, liaduaba. Duaba. I backed away from the strange display, certain the man had gone mad. Lady La you stay. Mitai pushed himself upright, swayed, and then steadied himself to explain. He gestured to the heavens. Liahu his word for God. That much I understood. He knelt again, Facing east, then bowed his head to the sand. Le Dua, he bowed rhythmically. Le Dua. Prayer? My name was his word for prayer? Mitai rose. He beckoned me close, tipping my face toward the pinking dawn while he pointed. A single flashing star moved across the heavens. Kikeon, he said. Not a star. His ship. Mitai pressed the flare gun into my hands. The sky grew brighter, but maybe, just maybe, there were a few final moments for the flare to be seen. Le duois, Mitai tugged reverently at my sleeve, urging me to kneel beside him in the sand. Liahu, le We prayed together. Mitai cupped his hands around mine, and we lifted the flare gun to the sky. I squeezed the trigger once, twice. Two graceful trails lifted into the dawn above us, Prayers for two lives on the sands of a forbidden shore. Liahu Abba, we whispered together. Satisfied, Mitai patted my shoulder as if I were a small child, waving me toward the ship. Sons, come. Sleep. I did sleep that day, but not until I'd seen Takara. The Stasis capsule protected her from the worst of the crash. Both she and it were unharmed. I pulled her from the stasis unit and held her tight against me. I didn't have to say a word. She'd seen it all through the Neuralink. Matai's pounding woke me several hours later. I closed my eyes, but I could hear him rummaging through the skiff's wreckage. When dusk gave way to full dark, he laid his creation on the sand. He'd fashioned a small balloon from fabric sliced from the airship's sides. The silver sheath stretched limply across the sand, seeming far too small to support the weight of one person, much less two. My laughter was bitter on my lips. I knew it would never lift three. There was no basket, but Mitai had fashioned a double harness. With a pigeon of words and gestures, he explained that this would lift us into the sky ahead of Kikeon's arrival. If we could get high enough above the lunging bite of Bahamut, the Kikeon would pluck us from the air." Mitai demonstrated the harness, the air masks and the gas canister, ensuring that I could use them if I had to. He tapped his chronometer and held up two fingers. Two hours. We would rendezvous with Kikeon in two hours. Kara watched through the neuralink. I could feel her there on the edge of my thoughts. We spent those two hours together, Kara and I, talking like old friends, like sisters. I told her Annam was hers, to keep or sell as she pleased. She tried to argue with me, insisting that I should go, or that she would send rescuers from the ship from Tarshish. I held firm. The neurolink no longer compelled her to obedience, but terror, hero worship and years of habit amounted to much the same thing. Tarshish might look the other way for dye smuggling and illegal tourism so long as the right people were paid and nobody made trouble. Even a missing tourist could be covered up if Kara played it right. But an illegal clone demanding a rescue mission in the interdict zone? That was trouble of the highest order. That kind of trouble would get people killed. When the dark hour came, it was Kara who met Mitai on the sand. Kara who let herself be strapped into the harness opposite him. I'd expected the ascent to be slow, a leisurely upward drift, but it wasn't. The canister opened with a wrenching squeal. The balloon shot upward, yanking Kara and Mitai off their feet. It dragged them, tumbling over the sand, before it whipped them into the sky. I stayed out of sight, hidden in the wreckage of the skiff. Kara's heartbeat pounded against my ribs. Mitai pressed against her in the harness, smelled of blood and sweat. Maybe she didn't understand, or maybe the reality didn't hit home until she saw the crippled airship shrinking on the sandbar below. Wind and terror whipped her hair across her face and left wet tracks on my cheeks. One arm stretched back to me while she rocketed upward, a single word from her lips, and burned into my consciousness through the neurolink, link Mother! I felt the lurch when the Kikeon hooked the balloon. I fought Kara's vertigo, swinging in the harness as Mitai crew reeled them in. The Kikeon faded to a tiny point in the sky, then disappeared entirely leaving me standing alone in the ruined airship. Without the net, the Neuralink's range was only a few miles, so I lost Kara in the humid haze over the vast blue ocean. Mother. The word jangled around in my head. Is that what I was to her? I closed my eyes against a spinning sensation that had nothing to do with Kara's skyward flight. I staggered from the corpse of the airship, The silver sands turned treacherous under my feet and I pitched to the ground like a fisherman's catch. Grief shook me. Grief for Emmy, for Kara, for Eunice, and yes, for Donnie. My fist-pounded furrows that filled again as soon as I made them. Sand abraded my elbows, caked my lips, crunched between my teeth. Finally, when exhaustion came, I lay still and silent, Smelling salt, hot sand, and feeling the persistent sting of sun on my exposed skin, I crawled back to the ruined skiff and slept. I woke at dusk, feeling stiff, sore, and throat parched. I pillaged the ship's storage lockers for water and rations. I ate with my feet in the sand, staring over the chasm of blue water that separated me from the island. Eunice's voice played in my head, warning me about symmetry, shadows, and patterns. Life he'd said is direction the Bahmut know this, and they strike no direction, no life, and the Bahmut allows it to pass. It took me three night-day cycles to prepare. I scavenged the hulk of the skiff for food, water, nets, and knives, and swaths of fabric cut from the airship's skin. I tested the currents from different places on the sandbar, watching and waiting while I tracked bits of flotsam I'd set adrift. I'd have to launch from the seaward side of the bar. Only the eddy where the waters rounded the point would spin me toward land at a sharp enough angle. If I miss the island, i drift out into Jane of Four's vast open waters. I tested the capsule's seals with a bucket of seawater, then pushed it knee deep into the shallows to test the repulses. It hovered a quarter meter above the surface, turning this way and that with the wind. I beached the capsule and hauled the skiff's tattered nets into the sand. Working in the cool of night, I threaded the weave with supplies and debris from the crash. I laid them over Kara's capsule like a bedraggled shroud, masking its regular lines in a cloud of jumbled trash. Sealed inside, I would be at the mercy of wind and wave, unable to steer or paddle. I cast myself adrift under a night of alien stars. The capsule bobbed gently, sealing me away from sound and sky. In the darkness, my mind wandered. Was it Wednesday? I thought of the ship's spar. Emmy would be mourning the loss of her father, held safe in the arms of the only mother she'd ever known. I understood then I'd never been Emmy's mother, not in any way that mattered. In that crystalline moment, I lost the person I was and became someone else. It was this new Lydia who finally understood love, who knew in the deepness of her soul that love was more than chemicals in the bloodstream or flashes in the brain. It was this Lydia who finally understood the trust and wonder in Kara's innocent eyes and the single word torn from her lips as her mother released her into the sky for a chance at life. My feet make no sound while I descend from the cave in my purple robe. The capsule skin is white and smooth under my fingers. The seat's foam padding cradles me like a child in the cool velvet of night. I seal the hatch and find myself surrounded by the soft thumb-thump of my own heartbeat. Indicator lights glow blue, confirming connections to the NeuroLink embedded behind my ear. I've done the math more times than I can count. Scratching time dilation equations in the sands of Jane Four. If Kara is coming, I must buy her more time and I must do it before I'm too weak to survive the process. I stretched the rations as far as I could. Now that they're gone, sand fleas and seaweed will only delay starvation, not prevent it. I'd hope to be awake if Kara came, but like so many other things, that is no longer possible. I think the words as clearly as I can. I want Kara to hear them in the NeuroLink's memory module if she cannot revive me. Kara, child of my body and daughter of my heart, take care of Emmy for me. You were a better mother to her than I ever was, and whatever happens, know that your mother loved you. Satisfied, I speak the words that Donnie had ordered of Kara all those months ago. Computer, identify NeuroLink. A mechanised voice recites Kara's unit identification number and asks if I wish to proceed. I lean back into the cushions, holding the image of Emmy and Kara firmly in my mind. Initiate stasis. A floating sensation lifts me into the indigo night. When I close my eyes, I can smell vanilla extract. (coughs)
2: Oh, brilliant stuff. Big thank you to Carrie. Don't forget, copyright is Carrie's and Lulu. What can I say? Big hugs. Thank you so much. We're enjoying your little kind of flit away there over on your holidays. Thank you so much. So next up is Poetry Planet at Poetry Planet. And it's it's been a while. Yes, it, it's <laughs> yes. This is the 16th edition of Poetry Planet. And it features, Diane says, it features 12 poets who actually responded. She put a call out, Diane put a call out for animals and creatures. And this was about three years ago. Now, she says, Diane says, since it's pretty long, she's suspensed with all the kind of bios and everything like that. So you're just getting the meat of the matter, just the poetry. And there'll be a link over on Diane's site. So I'll put a link on my site to pop over there and then you can read all. The you know the, the kind of the, the waffle about the poets. So straight in with a bit of poetry, Diane. Hello
4: and welcome to Poetry Planet. I'm your guide, Diane Severson. It's been a while since I've conducted a themed tour of the planet. The original number for this one was Poetry Planet number nine, but it is now Poetry Planet number sixteen. It's been a year since I produced a Poetry Planet for you, and three years, I think, since I've done a themed one. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, we've had several visits to Reisling Awardland and Contestville, and I moved to a different country, and back, as well. I was based in Paris for a while, and moved back to Germany a few months ago. Life has been a bit frenetic lately, to say the least, but no matter, here we are again, all set to have a look at the fauna of Poetry Planet—the animals and creatures, that is— this will be a long one. I received a lot of good submissions many moons ago, for which I apologize to the poets for having to wait so long for this show, and I just couldn't cut it down. You'll hear poetry by the usual suspects, Adele Garner, Jeffrey Landis, David C. Kapaska-Merkel, Rachel Swirsky, Bruce Boston, Joanne Merriam, and a couple from poets new to Poetry Planet, Dalbert Gardner, Greer Woodard, Michael Bishop, Russell Jones, and Scott Vertz. Let's start with the small creatures, shall we? And two sorts that we find both in the earth to boot. Ants and earthworms. (laughs) The Ant Swap by Russell Jones I bend an ear to your sound, put my knees in the dirt, Offer my orifices to you like doorways in dictionaries. A quick trek, and I hope you'll find, Like a tongue's first flirt with noise, Enough voice to speak to me in antennas and eyes. I say, The stone, the stone, Through the grass, dirt, dirt, stick, And then the heat of sugar, The prized melting flesh of roadkill. You say, The sky, the sky, Through the atmosphere, stratosphere, and then the heat of stars, The prized melting flesh of my cosmos. The Meek Shall Inherit The Earthworm Speaks By Delbert R. Gardner Instead of being a pair of ragged claws, Scuttling across the floor of sunless ocean, I'd rather follow my own annelid laws and eat and undulate for locomotion. I work in mysterious ways, my earth-moving duties to perform. A maze of worm and calcined tunnels fills the earth. We're everywhere, except in rock or sand, a hundred thousand of us per acre of land. The scoffers, no doubt, say, when you see one earthworm, you've seen them all. There's hardly room for individuality. Ah, well, what do the scoffers know? Do they know how we build and lime our tunnel wall? They don't know how the dirt we masticate, which passes through our systems and out the ends, gives us both locomotion and nutrition. To eat and run is part of our condition. And then the way we propagate our race, without the need for difference of sex. But each of us is male and female worm. Our mating wears a most platonic face, laid end to end we merely swap our sperm, then separate, and each of us effects the birth of his her passionless begot. Ingenious arrangement, is it not? Eliminates all sorts of lovers' fights, paternity suits and staying-awake nights, wondering if the spouse is false or true. And yet there will be times when I debate about just where the scheme of things all tends, and wonder, too, about free will and fate. I feel a little lost in all the crew of earthly worms around me, hardly friends. Who will notice when I, too, am part of this dear soil in which they have their being? And after you've moved a pound of earth, so what? I must have moved almost a pound by now. It was my greatest purpose at the start, but now I seem to have dropped why for how. If I could feel my job accomplished aught, Within the larger scheme of this our earth Our sages tell us to believe without seeing That what we're doing in itself has worth And that we shouldn't try to understand The higher purpose of life They say have faith in things not felt Beyond our mazy land of dirt and moisture There's another kind of world Depending on ours in many ways Incomprehensible to earthworm mind Ah well, then, let it be Let's do our job, and someday we may see. I expect rabbits are popular subjects among speculative writers. I'm not sure why exactly, except perhaps for their connection to magicians. But I can think of one novel, Watership Down, and one story, Daughter of Botu, by Yuji e. Foster, right off the bat, which use talking rabbits as characters. Joanne Merriam doesn't let her rabbits talk, but rather we are given a brief introduction to rabbits, their characteristics, and motivations. Magic Rabbits by Joanne Merriam After Gwendolyn McEwan's Magic Cats A baby rabbit is a kit for making more baby rabbits. Most rabbits do not celebrate their pasts or futures. Rather, they are extremely righteous about food and fucking. Domesticated rabbits see their cages as dukedoms. They hold grudges for everything. They avoid getting wet. Rabbits cannot vomit. Rabbits, on the whole, are reluctant to read poetry. Rabbits have no costumes, although some love clever, ambitious, dramatic productions. They break dance when they're happy. Rabbits recognize three breeds of rabbits up ears, down ears, and crazy legs. Rabbit philosophy is based on the fact that they can see everywhere, but directly in front of their faces. Their patron saint is called Watches Borders. When rabbits decide to die, they become humdrum, silent among invisible mockingbirds. Of course, all rabbits go to heaven. It's impossible for them to sin. Moving on to cats. You know, those aloof, mysterious creatures which tolerate humans. They are a very popular creature to write about. Tail Chaser's Song by Tad Williams and Felidae by Akif Princi being two that come to mind instantly. You'll be hearing five short poems about them. Well, sort of. Adele Gardner and Greer Woodard's poems are both first-person narratives describing what a cat is doing, thinking, feeling. Geoffrey Landis's poem, Tree, ruminates on crossing a cat with a tree for a better pet. David Kapaska-Merkel's cat is quite the usual cat, but it has interesting encounters of the Lovecraftian sort. And Mary Terzillo's Invisible Cat is a delightful rhyming poem with a refrain. God's Cat by Adele Gardner Max believes the world is his field mouse, leaps straight onto my back while I'm standing straight, as if I were his tree, his claws digging in, secure of his welcome. CHIRPING HIS PLAINTIVE COMMENTARY STRAIGHT INTO MY EAR, THE EAR OF GOD, AND HE, MY FURRY-BEGOTTEN SON, SLEEK AND DARK AS NIGHT, BEDEVILING EVEN MY MOST PRIVILEGED DISCIPLES WITH HIS DEMANDS. NO DEMON'S POINTED tail IS SACRED, NO ANGEL'S WINGS CAN FLUTTER PAST WITHOUT SWIFT, TARGETED DESTRUCTION, TORN TO SHREDS AND FEATHERED SHARDS LIKE SOME COMMON GARDEN-VARIETY BIRD. HIS IRREVERENCE IS TERRIFYING. For me, my works, my favored ones. As if by inviting him here, I've given all the affirmation he needs to a one-beast reign of loving terror. You should hear his furry chuckle as he barrels down the hall to slash your head. Just one quick fang to the neck. That's it. Dig in. It's good, isn't it? Viewing everything in the world from up here on God's shoulder. With thanks to Brian Kahn. Far from Home by Greer Woodard. A nanobot posts from my cat's ear. It sends me images of distant earth, the sound of wind, the chill of rain, the smell of homemade stew. I turn my longing into words and watch them tread across my screen on cyber feet as soft as silken paws. I send the bot my forward view and wonder if an alphabet of stars treads through my cat's dreams. Tree by Jeffrey A. Landis. I think that I shall never pet a tree as lovely as a cat, but gene engineering, given time, will breed us trees much more feline. Instead of bark a silky fur, a tree with a low and rumbling purr. In the future, I will bet, a tree will be the perfect pet. A pussy willow to meow and beg, while tiger lilies rub your leg. Dogwood trees won't howl at night, but bark the catwoods to affright. A tree will not have fleas or lice, although a tree will not chase mice. And one more thing makes trees much better. A tree does not need kitty litter. So one day soon, although not yet, a tree will be the perfect pet. Orpheus in Althar in Neuan by David C. kapaska merkel Some say cats rule in Althar, that their strong-paw tactics keep the streets clear of zoogs and other riffraff. Maybe so, and perhaps with sinuous leaps they can clear the gulfs between universal bubbles in vengeful hordes. But I can't see it. My cat doesn't come when I call, and no special whistle is going to change his mind, no pur-pressure would make him join any Altharian gang. He is a solitary fellow, if always ready for a scratch. I do wonder, though, where he goes for a day or more, now and then. I swear he never leaves the house. But those curious bones he was playing with, after a long absence, they fit together for me only one way. When I remember, I'll show them to my anatomist friend. I'm sure he won't end up joining two pelvises, one set of shoulder blades, six limbs, and an impossible number of vertebrae, to a single, oddly holy skull. (laughs) ¶¶ INVISIBLE CAT by Mary Terzillo He's invisible, phantasmagorical, ectoplasmical, half-draconical. He's all that, invisible cat. That litter was extraordinary, Mama cat-eyes distinguished more. Counting kittens, she saw five, but when we looked, we saw just four. Phantom feline lives with you, he eats your food, he haunts your flat. "'You saw him as a kitten, how about that? "'But now he's vanished, invisible cat. "'He leaves a present on the stair, "'broken feathers, severed paws, "'spots of blood or clumps of hair. "'But when you scream and ask him, "'What?' "'Phantom Feline isn't there. "'He's invisible, phantasmagorical, "'ectoplasmical, half draconical. "'He's all that, invisible cat. "'Far from ordinary,' 'Cause he suddenly appears, gives you a coronary, first his whiskers, then his ears, just as quick he disappears. Rumours of his hijinks here and there, a mousy squeak, a doggy bark, someone saw him slinking through the park. He's a phantom, he's a ghost, he only comes out in the dark. In your sleep you feel his weight, he settles on your feet or chest, won't let you move, won't let you rest. He's there in darkness all night long, but turn the light on, and he's gone. He's invisible, phantasmagorical, ectoplasmical, half draconical. He's all that invisible cat. Michael Bishop's Reisling Award-winning poem entitled To a Chimp Held Captive for Purposes of Research is the centerpiece of this trip to Poetry Planet. It's pretty long, so brace yourselves. (laughs) To a Chimp Held Captive for Purposes of Research by Michael Bishop Argument An idealistic young researcher at a facility making extensive use of primates, particularly chimpanzees, addresses a male animal under her supervision. 1. Your heart aches. I can see it in your face. Do you dream of the day when you were orphaned? Or is it the sterile stench of this place that makes you gnaw the heel of your hand? Either, I think, would be reason enough— to etch that pitiable expression on your wretched, rubbery, man-like mast. It must also be tough, having to contend with our compassion, the feckless ways we take ourselves to task. 2. Eleven years ago they shot your mother from a treetop, and down she came with you, astride her shaggy back, just another silent Zeno for our surgical zoo. They tore you wide-eyed from her warm body, A terrific wench only lead could tame. Loveliest coin of your lost pondered wealth. Yes, it does seem odd. We sanctify such ruthlessness in the name of our superior species' right to health. 3. And then, of course, the funk of the cages, the deadening wages of quarantine, the drug-fogged hours, virtual ages, while we test what our tinkerings must mean— Little wonder, then, that you wear your gloom like the hair-shirt of a saint, a threadbare mantilla of regret, a monkish frock. Still, I'd like to assume that we could cure your melancholy stare merely by jimmying a fast-jammed lock. 4. Not likely. Prominent ethnologists warn, after long confinement, a chimp uncaged solely to stalk our research lists becomes, in social terms, a hapless gimp. What Simeon Guinevere could grapple gracefully with your uncouth gibberings, your taste for crap, your ignorance of sex? Even Eve, with her apple, would have thought you the saddest of beings upon whom to bestow a mortal hex. 5. The Interagency Primate Steering Committee of the National Institutes of Health fears your species may be nearing the born of countless other bygone brutes. No one comes back from that dolorous state, not dinosaurs or quaggas or dodos, though sometimes we grant you sabbatical sun, expecting you to mate, you coolly disdain to breed in the throes of our own lively race to extinction. 6. The vaccine you gave us for hepatitis B might hearten you a little, or the hope of harvesting from your hemoglobin C a melanoma-neutralizing dope. But no, you deeply disturbed prisoner of our devotion to our research roles, you'd rather we determine why you grieve, put our heads together, and ask if apes have apprehensive souls. That, however, we simply don't believe. 7. Or perhaps I do. I've heard your high screech carry through the antiseptic cell block, like the cry of one called upon to preach rebellion to his shy phlegmatic flock. And I've trembled to think, not that you would really pull down these godforsaken tears, but that you do possess an upward-yearning spirit that might have stood in the same nearness to mine as Shakespeare's given but love and hypnosis-led learning. 8. Idiocy! You were born for torment, not the presiding role at Sunday Mass, the lifting of a bleeding heart's lament, or your potential mastery of chess the suffering you abide and noble, all of us, giving a grave, selfless laugh to those who vow our vanities too large. If the dearest foible of our kind is to err on our own behalf, why, then, to forgive is a chimp's clearest charge? 9. Ah, but do you forgive? Can you forgive? Racked, stuck, implanted, cut upon and dosed with caustic rays and chemicals, you live a galvanic dream, half-junkie, half-ghost. All right, I'll renounce the outward human. To reassert my rogue humanity, I'll don a gaudy gorilla costume that may yet illumine my mad return to moral sanity. I, your heinous bride, you, my hirsute groom. 10. No marriage made in heaven, I grant you, but the late Charles Darwin and the Leakeys of Kenya will sit in a spectral pew as we exchange rings and a few rueful fleas. Oh, let my more unfeeling colleagues scoff to catch me cavorting in apish drag, funny farm foe of their humbug refrain. Brute spouse, I'll not take off this suit until the butchers cease to brag they're putting an end to reasonless pain. So, wait, we haven't been to the sea yet? Well, I bring you Scott Wirtz's musings on the creature in the sea. Tasting the Pier by Scott Wirtz It lives under the pier its many eyes at the cracks looking up on our world from below. It feels beating hearts, sees waves of warm blood, it laps up the pools of fish juice and spilled beer. It reaches for a taste of anything new, its hunger is raw and someday it will reach too far. As the sun comes up, the burning begins, it retreats to its layer of mussel shells, and clammy dreams. And what would a show about animals and creatures be without dinosaurs and dragons? That is precisely what Rachel Swirsky and Bruce Boston have chosen to write about. Terrible Lizards by Rachel Swirsky I wish a giganotosaur would hunt cows in the cornfields. Imagine her, tall as the silos, long as the mechanical serpents of the industrial sprinklers, skull the length of Grandma's lion-footed bathtub that we replaced with fiberglass last winter. My niece would gasp at the kitchen window. Papa, come look! Something's in the corn! Suspecting an attempt to escape chores, my brother starts a rebuke, until he glimpses the gleam of teeth long as his forearm. We scramble down to the reservoir, only to find a bone-ridged eye peering out of the water, a sea serpent resplendent with crocodile grin. Glaring indifference, the mosasaur snaps a flock of geese down into enormous reptilian jaws. Overhead, the wingspan of a Quetzalcoatlus blocks a passing jet, "'smaller pterodactyls trailing like ducklings in his wake, "'waiting to scavenge his prey's bloody remnants. "'We cower in his vast shadow, "'prehistoric calls filling the air "'with caws and roars and bellows "'harmonizing to an ancient melody "'we recognize in our deepest, primitive DNA, "'where we remain scrawny rodents trembling in burrows, "'hoping to escape the notice of Earth's colossal rulers.' Humans evolved too late to experience predators, that could crush us swiftly and heedlessly without reprisal. Would tyrannosaurs, stalking the strip mall parking lot, and batting trailers across the highway like children's toys, remind us just how small we are? Tiny creatures on a tiny planet, orbiting a tiny sun, a fragile and fleeting existence, easily snuffed by claw, tooth, or footstep? Dragon People by Bruce Boston. If dragon people were the world, we would hoard our gold and breathe fire on our neighbors. We would live in luxurious caves with all the modern conveniences at our disposal. We would listen to dragon music and watch dragon movies where the human hero was slain. With the latest salves and ointments we would combat the fungus that plagues our scales. Our sinuous necks would dip and swerve, and our eyes would glow as we courted one another. We would take to the air slowly, wings flapping in flights, majestic and cumbersome. With serious, sensuous roars from deep in our throats, we would quake the earth below. And so we've reached the end of our trip. I hope you enjoyed learning about the sorts of creatures that can be found on Poetry Planet. To be sure, there are countless others that were too elusive for us today, but venture out into the wilds for yourself, and you may catch a glimpse. But be warned.
2: There you go. Diane, big thank you for that. It's, it's, it's worth the wait. And like I say, I'll put a link on the Diane site, so if you pop over there and grab the links and you can find out all about the poem she was reading today. So that is today's show. I do hope you will enjoyed it, and I hope you will come back and, and get some more next time. And the reason why I hadn't put an interview up was just with you know two fact articles there as well. So I didn't want to kind of make this far too long of a show, but you know what I mean? It's, it's lovely when we get the kind of fact articles there. You know, just please, a little bit luck quicker tie-on. <laughs> Thank you so much. So that like I say, that is it. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this
4: terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story. <laughs>